This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody, it's Lon Sybin, and it's time for your weekly wrap-up. And I want to begin, as we always do, by thanking our newest Patreon supporters. We have Howard Reeves, Henry Lay, Tim Watchenfeld, who gave via the tip jar, and Matt Jeske, who also gave to the tip jar. I want to thank everyone who contributed this week and everyone who contributes on an ongoing basis, as well as all of you who watch on an ongoing basis, too, because all of those things equal channel growth, and that is where we are headed. So this week, we don't have an advertiser, so we're going to do another non-ad where I give you an affiliate link to something that I like. And I am a big fan of Audible, if I haven't told you so already. I know I have. And I just wrapped up listening to American Kingpin by Nick Bilton. Uh, This book is about the story of the Silk Road, which was a uh, marketplace that existed on the Tor network, on the dark web. And it is a fascinating story. If you haven't followed this story and you really like uh, crime novels and uh, investigative kind of things, I think you're really going to like this book. It details the investigation. It also details uh, how this guy with his laptop built a uh, multi-million dollar, perhaps a hundred million dollar or more business uh, transiting drugs and other uh, things on the internet uh, under the noses of the federal authorities here in the U.S. and how they finally caught up with him. It is a fantastic read. I really breezed through this one. It was about eight, I think about 10 hours or so, but I uh, really was listening to it every free moment that I had because it was a really well put together book. It is nonfiction, but it's in a narrative style, so it is very readable and approachable, and I definitely recommend it. Quite a fascinating story with a lot of different components to it, so definitely check it out if you haven't already. So this week on the Extras channel, I unboxed a bunch of stuff that you'll be seeing later in the week, so we are going to be looking at the Elgato Cam Link, which is another one of these UVC HDMI USB adapters. I'll talk more about it a little later. Uh, We also have the TechLast T-Book 16, which I hope to get to uh, by Wednesday or Thursday of next week, and then uh, two items that I already reviewed this week, the HP Pavilion Laptop and the Hyperkin Smart Boy. On the main channel, of course, we did have that HP laptop. I got a pretty good deal on it. It was about $689 when I got it, about $730 after tax and everything. Uh, i5 quad-core with a 1050 GPU from NVIDIA. So at that price, a very good deal. I think now it's selling in the uh, mid-700s at the moment. There's a sale that keeps like changing the dynamics of the price of this thing, but I'll put a link down below to the review in the master playlist so you can go and see what it costs at the moment. But I think you might be able to get a good deal on a, a computer that can game pretty nicely, and it doesn't look too obnoxious either, so be on the lookout for that. I also reviewed the Hyperkin Smart Boy, which is a... I guess a a dock that links up with your Samsung Android smartphone and allows you to play your Game Boy cartridges on the phone. But it's really clunky in its software implementation. Uh, Check out the full review to get my uh, full impression of it. I was kind of disappointed with the software. Uh, The hardware is actually pretty cool, but the rest of it isn't so great. I also did a follow-up video on the Samsung T5, and I compared the 250-gigabyte version to the 500-gigabyte version. I got a 500-gig drive in from the Amazon Vine program. The 500-gig actually uh, eliminated most of the concerns I had with the 250, uh, primarily its sequential write performance. It's a lot more consistent on the 500 
than it is on the 250. So if you are looking for video capturing and that kind of thing, I think you'll have better luck with the 500, just given what I saw uh, in that video, which you can check out. And I did a sponsored post this week from Plex. This is kind of a bonus one because they're uh, doing a free trial offer for people who watch this channel. I'll talk more about that a little later as well. Uh, So I did a video announcing that free trial, and uh, you can also see me experiment with their photo and music features as well. We haven't looked at those yet in Plex, and I always try, if I have to do a sponsored video, to uh, bring in some more value to it. So if you're interested as to how uh, photo tagging works, they have some auto photo tagging in Plex right now, as well as the music stuff. You can check out that video for more information on that, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that Plex Pass feature a little later in the video. And now it's time for a couple of things that are on my mind, and this is week 25 of this full-time endeavor uh, continuing here on the channel. So that's been a good thing. And uh, this week, I finally found a good candidate uh, to fill the part-time position that I've been talking about for a year and a half. And I'm going to try to get him started in the next week or two. So I'll introduce him some way to all of you. And uh, what he's going to start on doing is just helping me get through my backlog, getting a lot of the PCs set up and uh, benchmarked and all the tests run on it and stuff. And I hope it will uh, increase my ability to pump out more content. My goal here is not to have, you know, seven or eight videos a week. I think the max I want to do is five or six, but uh, it will help me to have a bit of a uh, cushion. So if I have to take a day and work on business development, we'll have something ready to go. So my hope is, like many other YouTubers have, uh, is to have a bunch of videos in the can ready to be published that uh, will give me a little more leeway and a little less pressure to keep producing. So uh, he's going to help with that as his first endeavor, and then we'll be uh, taking it from there. So you'll undoubtedly see him as things develop. And again, I'll make a formal introduction once we get all the paperwork working out and I have to get all my uh, tax documents in order and all that stuff. It's actually very complicated to hire somebody, so hopefully I will do it correctly and we'll get him up, up and running very shortly in the next week or two. So I'm very excited about that. And I wanted to share with you some eclipse data from last week's eclipse. So I am in Connecticut and we did get about a 60% coverage where I am of the sun. It was like 60 or 65%. It was a little darker outside, but not a lot. I did a quick live stream just to see if we'd be able to see anything really cool and interesting. It wasn't uh, all that great of a show here. But uh, if you look at some data, you can actually see the impact that uh, this eclipse event had on a solar panel system. So this is my old uh, workplace, and we have about 1,200 solar panels on the roof of the building there. Uh, which is quite substantial. And uh, there's actually a lot that goes into placing solar panels for one of these systems. And I'll show you uh, what that entails in a second here. But here is the production chart uh, from the solar panel system from Monday, the day of the eclipse. Now, this system is a 250 kilowatt system, but at this time of the year, we start to see it beginning to reduce in its overall maximum production because uh, we get less solar intensity as we move into the autumn and into the winter. So usually around May, June, usually like April, May or June is usually the most intense solar activity for us here in Connecticut, and that is where uh, we generate the most electricity. So this is the chart from Monday, and you can see here there's 5 a.m. and here's 6 a.m., and you can see as the sun comes up, we start generating uh, more electricity as uh, the sun gets higher in the sky and in view of more of those solar panels. And then we hit our peak here. We started to level off as the afternoon proceeded. But then look at this huge drop here at the 2 p.m. hour. 
Uh, now, the eclipse was, of course, uh, beginning around 2 o'clock or so here, and the peak was 2.45, and then it took another hour or two for the sun to come back to its uh, full, uh, full extent. And you can see here what a huge drop we had. Now, this building typically uses about 90 kilowatts of electricity just in its normal uh, demand. So typically, during a nice sunny day like we had on Eclipse Day, uh, the sun is powering the building, and there is additional electricity being pushed back out onto the grid, except in the case of when you have a solar eclipse. And our uh, production uh, dipped down to 60 uh, kilowatts there, which means that we were actually pulling from the grid at a time we normally would not have, uh, given the fact that the sun was being blocked and we were not generating as much electricity. But once the moon uh, cleared the way there, uh, you can see it jumped back a little bit and then, of course, followed its usual pattern. Here is what it typically looks like on a nice sunny day. You get a good bell curve here where the uh, solar generation here goes right up to uh, the peak time here and then just kind of drops down as the sun uh, begins to set. And uh, here's another example here. Sometimes you get some clouds and other things that interfere with it. So we did have a little bit of a cloudy overcast day on eclipse day. So the maximum generation here was a little lower than it was the other two days, but we did not have a bell curve here. We had a huge drop off and then a uh, return to uh, the sunlight. And then, of course, it followed its regular pattern there. So kind of cool to look at uh, a solar eclipse event with data from an actual solar panel system, and I thought you all might find that of interest. Now, if you're curious about how the system works, one of the things I never got around to was taking you up on the roof here before I left to show you. Uh, so I think I'll just show you some pictures that I had. So this is the system. Uh, again, about 1,200 panels or so up on the roof, and there's a lot of engineering that goes into this because you really can't uh, put a lot of roof penetrations in to keep these things uh, locked down. So when they were building the system, what they did is they ballasted uh, the trays that the solar panels uh, sit on uh, with cinder blocks, and you strap everything together, and it really holds itself together quite well. So we have very minimal roof penetrations on this system, yet I believe it's uh, rated to survive like a Category 3 hurricane or something. And we usually don't get those strong of a hurricanes uh, here in Connecticut. I think our, the strongest one I can remember was like a Category 1 or 2. Uh, but it will definitely withstand a pretty decent storm, and I think it did uh, withstand uh, the uh, two uh, hurricane or tropical storm events that we had since it was installed. So it's been uh, pretty stable up on the roof there. So you can see the construction process. Um, the panels work by taking strings of, I believe, 13 panels together, and they run those wires into these boxes here. These are called combiner boxes, where uh, all of those strings are basically aggregated together and uh, pushed out over a larger wire. We have six of these boxes all over the roof. You could probably see them uh, in the overhead shot here. So uh, we've got, maybe it's a little bit harder to see here. We've got one over there. There's a couple along this string here, and there's one up here on the uh, higher portion of the roof. So six total. Uh, those take all of the uh, generated electricity and send it down through the only roof penetrations we have on this system. Six penetrations here to allow that conduit to pass down to the inverter, uh, which sits here in the warehouse. And uh, this takes in all of those uh, generated electrons and converts the DC from those panels to AC for the building to use. And what happens is the building uh, will draw from the inverter first before it pulls power from the grid. And typically, because we are generating so much during the day, we're pushing power back out while we're uh, still using some of it from those solar panels, too. So this is a, a very efficient system for that building, and I think it saves uh, a good amount of money. In fact, I think it generates all of the electricity in the building from a net metering perspective about seven or eight months out of the year, which is pretty substantial. This is not a factory. It's mostly a distribution center warehouse, so there's not a lot of uh, machinery working. But uh, even with the, the forklifts uh, charging at night, uh, we're still uh, using um, very little grid power on the net meter 
uh, for this particular uh, building, which is pretty cool. And now it's time for some things that I saw in the news this week, and I wanted to start off with HTC. The smartphone manufacturer uh, might be selling off the HTC Vive unit uh, as part of a restructuring because they're having a very hard time with their smartphone business, but uh, the Vive is becoming very popular. It's not a blockbuster product by any stretch. The Oculus Rift isn't either. Uh, looks like consumers haven't really jumped on board the VR bandwagon yet, but the Vive is actually doing very well in the consumer side of things, comparatively speaking, with the Oculus Rift. It's also doing very well on the enterprise side because it really handles the room-scale VR very effectively. In fact, I've tried both systems. I own the Vive, and I really do prefer the Vive to the Oculus. It's really, a, uh, I think, an awesome product, almost like the holodeck. If you've never tried one before, it will blow you away when you first uh, put it on. I really want to do more with the Vive, so if there are things you wish for me to do, uh, let me know down in the comments. Maybe I'll do a special or two on it when I have my helper here to uh, help record the video we would make from it. It's often hard to see what's going on when you have the Vive helmet on, so if I can give the camera to our part-time person, that might be a great way to uh, do more with the VR system than I have so far. But I haven't seen a lot of interest just overall in uh, my Vive videos, which I'll put down in the master playlist. So I am eager to hear from you what you might like to see me do with it, and we can explore some aspects of that VR system in a future video. And there was a big outcome to a very big lawsuit involving two YouTubers this week. So Matt Haas was the plaintiff pictured above. He was suing H3H3 H3 Productions pictured below. And you can see the defendants here were successful in a very long-running lawsuit as to whether or not uh, H3H3 H3 violated the copyright of Matt Haas when they lampooned him in one of their videos. And their typical formula is, is they uh, grab another creator's content. They don't upload the whole thing all over again, but they pull out portions of it and provide commentary and satire over it. And it's a, a very popular uh, channel that a lot of people I know watch quite a bit. And uh, what happened here is Matt Haas just didn't have a sense of humor about it and sued them for defamation as well as some copyright issues. And the arguments that a lot of people raised at the time was that H3H3 H3 was within their right to do that because it represented what we call in the United States a fair use. So in the U.S., we like our uh, criticism and commentary, and that allows you under the law uh, to go out and grab somebody else's content and take a portion of it and make a comment on, of it. You're supposed to take uh, just what you need to provide the commentary that you're trying to do to enhance the original work. Uh, and in this case, I believe that they were uh, correctly making use of that legal right. However, uh, just because you have the right to do something in the United States doesn't mean you can't get sued for exercising that right, which is what happened here. And uh, in many cases, especially cases of copyright law, a very expensive lawsuit uh, is usually the result. So H3H3, I think, raised well over $100,000 for a legal defense fund to help them uh, litigate this case. Who knows what Matt Haas spent? He probably spent just as much, or maybe his lawyers did on contingency, uh, trying to push this case. And it's an example of uh, a kind of a new era that we're in because there really hasn't been a lot of legal precedent about fair use on a social media platform like YouTube because we have a lot more time to make videos. We don't have to uh, limit ourselves to only 30 minutes or so. So you can certainly uh, take a lot of original work and comment on it over a long period of time. And I think this will provide a pretty decent threshold for uh, future lawsuits. And I don't think it's going to end lawsuits. I don't think this protects YouTube in any way because really these uh, cases, especially when they get to a point when you have a DMCA takedown that is contested by the person receiving that takedown, the only outcome is for it to go to court. And I think every case that happens in the future will be looking back at this one as an example. In fact, I think we may see more lawsuits now 
uh, coming out between creators or perhaps brands and creators because uh, this kind of sets the threshold for what at the moment fair use is on YouTube. And for things that fall below that threshold, you might see more lawsuits springing up. And here's a great example of one that just happened this week. I, I have no doubt in my mind that this lawsuit is happening because of the outcome we just saw with the H3H3 case here. So uh, this guy, uh, Sargon of Akkad, is being sued by another creator named Akila Hughes. And you can find out more on the, uh, the Lawful Masses uh, YouTube channel. I grabbed the still frame as he was talking about it live the other day. This link will take you right to all the details of that suit. But in a nutshell, Akkad is being uh, accused of grabbing content from Akila and just re-uploading it to his channel with no commentary provided. I haven't seen all the details of the case. I don't want to comment on who's right and who's wrong here. But uh, clearly the attorneys representing Akila uh, believe that uh, the threshold that has just been set by the H3H3 lawsuit has not been met here. And they may actually have a better chance now of being successful in that lawsuit because we now have a somewhat clear example in federal precedent about what fair use looks like on the YouTube platform. This might deter some folks from filing lawsuits in the first place, but it might actually encourage other folks to file lawsuits like this particular one here because uh, in this case, they're arguing that uh, Akkad's use of Hughes's content doesn't reach the threshold that was just set with the H3H3 case. We're gonna have to keep an eye on this to see where it goes from here. Now, it's very important to look at the burden of proof in these cases because uh, when a copyright holder files a suit against you for allegedly violating their trademarks or copyrights or whatever, the burden is not on them to prove it. It's on you to prove that you are using that content as fair use. And that is why these cases are so expensive and why it is so rare for an independent creator to defend themselves against one of these cases. More often than not, a creator will see that fancy law firm's letter and say, you know what, this is not worth my time or my money. I'm just gonna take the video down and give them what they want and everything goes away. And that's usually the way it happens. But if you decide to go ahead and file that counter notification, uh, the result might be a federal lawsuit coming your way. And every little possible claim that they can make about their uh, ownership of that copyright, they are going to throw at you. And the court will hear every single one of those arguments. You have to defend yourself against all of them, which is why this gets so expensive and why so many creators just give up even if they uh, have a good chance of winning the case. It's just too expensive uh, to get over the finish line on these things. And many copyright holders abuse the DMCA knowing that they can bully people around by the threat of litigation. But there is a way to defend yourself and that is to get insurance. And what I have is a policy that uh, covers not only whatever claims might be brought against the channel that I might lose in court, it also covers my legal defense costs as well. And I got a lot of coverage for this channel just to be safe because I never want to get myself into a situation where I may be forced to go out of business or uh, put myself into debt to protect my dream here. So $3,500 a year is what I'm paying right now. A lot of money for a, a policy such as this, but I think it's very important to have it because if I did get sued, my expenses would be far beyond 3,500 bucks. I'd probably spend $3,500 in the first four hours of meeting with my uh, legal team on our defense strategy. So uh, it's money well spent in my mind, at least uh, gives me some peace of mind to know that I am protected here. And I think if you are getting serious about your YouTube channel and you're talking about other people or other products or whatever, uh, you should probably get one of these, uh, these policies in place because I'm seeing more and more abuse of the DMCA and a lot more uh, lawsuits getting filed against independent content creators from 
large companies that know they can bully people around with their big law firms. Uh, this does give you the ability to have uh, a little more muscle on your side to defend yourself should any of these things ever happen. So get some insurance. It's going to cost you some money, but I think it's money well spent to get that peace of mind. And now it's time for some Q&A from you, the viewers. And I got this great question in here from Greg Ernst, who is uh, curious about my time management and wondering if I ever get to a point when enough is enough with a product and just kind of move on so I can get more videos done. And it really depends on the week. If I'm ahead on production, then I'll spend some time with some things that I know are going to take me a while to explore. And a great example of that is something I've got sitting on the floor over there, the uh, Blackmagic ATEM switcher that I got in to use as a spare in case my TriCaster ever goes down. This is the brand new uh, video switcher from Blackmagic. I haven't taken it out of the box to start playing with it yet because I know it's going to take a long time to uh, experiment with it and then do a video of it because there are so many features, there's so many different things to talk about. I need a lot of time to prep that video and to shoot that that video. Another great example is the uh, wireless video uh, switcher that we looked at recently from Sling. That one took a lot of time to prepare. I need to have that block of time out to be able to do that. Sometimes I'll start with something that I think will be pretty cut and dry, and then it kind of goes down the rabbit hole, which is what's happening with Parsec right now. So Parsec is a game streaming device, I've uh, app. I've talked about it now a couple of times here on the wrap-up. I've been planning to review it, but I can't get the latency on my end to be what they're seeing on their end, you know, on a local area network. So they're just getting much better uh, latency scores than I'm seeing with uh, my own equipment here. And I really want to get to the bottom of it before I do the review. So I spent a lot of time with it when I had time about two weeks ago, and I've run out of time to really keep looking at it and trying to tweak more things there. So I'm trying to schedule a time with their engineer uh, to make sure it's not something I'm doing on my end that's causing this latency, or if perhaps I found something that uh, they need to stamp out uh, as a bug. So I really want to make sure I'm uh, speaking correctly and factually when I finally do the review, but I kind of just put it on the shelf for a while until I have some time to work with their engineer because I'm just done tweaking it and I uh, need to keep producing content. What's funny is, is that I could put 12 hours into something here on the channel that uh, gets you know a good amount of viewership, but I could do something really quick that results in a ton of viewership. So the length of time that something takes to produce doesn't always uh, equal out to the viewership that that video receives. And that's, that sometimes it gets me because I'm like, oh, I spent a lot of time in that video. Too bad people don't like it as much as the one I took maybe 10 minutes to make. But uh, that's the nature of the business here and the nature of the algorithm sometimes that puts these videos in front of people. So yeah, so I do uh, and often throw my hands up sometimes and some things just never get on the channel. One of the things that really aggravates me is that when a company has a product that isn't fully baked yet, yet they release it. The, the smart boy from uh, Hyperkin is a great example of that. It really is half a product and it shouldn't have been released in its current state given how it works. And uh, it's something that really frustrates me when companies do that. That actually motivates me to come out and actually tell you <laughs> how awful it is so that I can maybe save some people some money and hopefully teach brands a lesson that they need to produce finished products and not treat us like beta testers as a result. But every situation is a little different. And sometimes I just put things on the shelf for a while and come back to them later. And Jonathan wrote in with a question about Packard Bell. Now, Packard Bell here in the United States was a prolific computer brand. In fact, when I was going to college in the mid-90s, I, of course, had my own home-built PC, but uh, just about everybody else who had a Windows PC was probably running with a Packard Bell branded computer because they were in all the major retailers. They had uh, quite a presence out there. I'm sure many of you probably owned a Packard Bell computer also. And it looks like that brand is making a comeback here in the United States, at least. 
Uh, there's one being sold at JCPenney right now. It is a Cherry Trail-based laptop with a 720p display. It's actually a little overpriced at $250 for what you're getting there, but uh, that is what it costs. I think it looks nicer in the picture than it might in reality. Uh, but I did a little digging to see what actually happened to Packard Bell, and as it turns out, in 2008, uh, Acer out of Taiwan acquired the brand, and they've been selling Packard Bell computers, or at least Packard Bell branded computers, uh, throughout most of the world, except the U.S. They've been sticking to the Acer brand in the U.S., with apparently the exception of JCPenney. So if you're ever curious whatever happened to Packard Bell, it looks like uh, Acer acquired them, and uh, kind of uh, has been using the brand in other markets ever since, and uh, that is it. So if you see a Packard Bell computer, it's really an Acer, but they are uh, sort of making a comeback. And this last question is a fun one in from Mobile Decay, who thinks I am pronouncing the word niche incorrectly. I use that word to describe the Hyperkin Smart Boy that I said it was a very niche product, and he thinks that the right pronunciation now should be niche. And uh, he did some of his own research in there, and he was actually once saying the word the way I did, but has changed the way he has said it. But I did some more research of my own, and I went over to the Grammar Girl, who's often the uh, definitive source for this kind of stuff, and uh, she recommends that you stick with niche. And I put a link down below to a very extensive article about uh, how to pronounce this word. Uh, the reality is I think you, you can probably be correct if you say niche or niche. Either one is good. I'm sticking to niche, and that is what I'm going to do here because the grammar girl said I could. And now it's time for a Q&A for you. And I'm curious if there are any new Chromebooks out there that I should be taking a look at. I haven't had a Chromebook on the channel in quite some time, and I feel like I'm missing something. So uh, please let me know if there are some affordable Chromebooks out there that I should be taking a look at down below in the comment stream, especially new ones that have just come out recently, especially for back to school season. Our channel of the week this week is actually a podcast. I don't think I've done this one recently or before, so hopefully I'm not repeating one here, but uh, it's the Carson Podcast, and it's hosted by a guy named Mark Malkoff. And what he does is he goes out and interviews celebrities who appeared on the Johnny Carson show at some point in their careers. Really great stories from some very well-known uh, comedians and actors and actresses and musicians. Uh, great stuff. He does a really nice job of uh, getting really well prepared for these interviews. So he's often uh, telling the guests things that they've completely forgotten about because he's done uh, such extensive research before he goes into it. Mark's a neat guy. I met him a couple of times. He once uh, lived in an Ikea for a month and I think also did a month on a jetliner just living on the jet going from city to city with Delta Airlines. He had worked out some really cool social media marketing deals with a few companies to do these crazy stunts. He even did one thing where he uh, tried to ride his bike to every single Starbucks in Manhattan in a 24-hour period, and I think he actually did it. Uh, so you can find out more about Mark on the website here, lon.tv slash Carson Podcast. So this week, I've got a couple of things planned. One thing I want to do is bring back the Raspberry Pi again. I am still uh, trying to get the time to put together my uh, guide to the $5 computer episode I've been promising for a while. But what I am going to do this week is bring back the, the Raspberry Pi as a cable box slash network DVR. Now, we did that a couple of weeks ago where I loaded on the Libre Elec version of Kodi onto a Raspberry Pi 3, and we were able to connect with the HD Home Run DVR through it. But you still had to navigate through some stuff to get the TV watching started. I have found a way that you can get the Raspberry Pi to boot up Kodi and then automatically run the HD Home Run add-on. There's a bit of a process involved to getting it to work, but once it's up and running, it's really simple to continue having it work the way you want it to. I know a bunch of people wrote in asking if that was possible because they want to get 
family members going with their Raspberry Pi as a cable box without having to show them how to click through all the stuff to get it working. This might uh, solve the problem for some folks, so stay tuned for that. I'm also going to be taking a look at the Cam Link from Elgato. This is another UVC-compatible HDMI to USB device. Uh, these things are suddenly coming out of the woodwork. We looked at one from Aver Media about two weeks ago. Uh, this one's a lot less expensive, though, at about $129, but it's not as good as the Aver is, and I'll show you exactly some of the issues I ran into with it. And if you want to help the channel, you can. You can go to lon.tv slash Patreon and make a monthly contribution to the channel. We also have uh, tip jar stuff set up at lon.tv slash tip jar for a one-time contribution. We have our PayPal link for international viewers at lon at lon.tv. And, of course, we've got the Plex thing going on right now, including that 90-day free trial. So if you go to lon.tv slash PlexPass, you can get the full PlexPass uh, functionality, DVR, and everything else for free for 90 days. It's a good deal, and it's ending soon, so you may want to take advantage of that. And, of course, we still have the uh, commission structure set up with them. So if you sign up for a free Plex account at lon.tv slash Plex, we'll get a small commission. Uh, we'll also get a commission if you gift a Plex Pass to somebody else at lon.tv slash Plex Gift. Now, this, of course, is not my only channel. We've got other channels set up, too. We have the Extras channel, where I do unboxings and supplementary content. The podcast is at lon.tv slash podcast for audio versions of this show and many other things that I do on the channel. The Snippets channel is at lon.tv slash snippets. It's a search-friendly place where I break up other videos into smaller, digestible, searchable chunks. And, of course, we've got the live streams that I do at lon.tv slash live streams. That's the archive link for that. I do ask that you click on the notification icon if you like what I'm doing so that you'll always get a notification whenever I upload a video. I do upload many of them, and this will tell you every time I do it. And, of course, we have ways to engage with the channel. Lon.tv slash email for my email list. Lon.tv slash Facebook for the Facebook page. And then the store where I resell the things that I bought and reviewed here on the channel. I just put up a bunch of stuff that already sold very quickly. And that is because people have signed up for my store alert email. Uh, so if you want an email every time I add something to the store, subscribe to that list and you'll get notified immediately right after I uh, click the button to upload it to the uh, shopping page that you'll see when you go to that link. So all sorts of great stuff here on the channel. Thank you all for your continued support. And that is going to do it for this week. Please keep your questions and comments coming. I'd love to get your Chromebook ideas and anything else that's on your mind on the comment stream down below. This is Lon Seidman. Thanks for watching. This channel is brought to you by my Patreon supporters, including Gold Level supporters, the Tangential Soup Podcast, and Chris Allegretta. If you want to help the channel, you can by contributing as little as a dollar a month. Head over to lon.tv slash Patreon to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe. Visit lon.tv slash s.